Good evening. Is the mic on? Okay. Uh, some of uh, my colleagues were supposed to be here with passing around the mic, <laughs> but maybe they're out having pizza or something. <laughs> so, uh, Roberta very graciously offered to pass the mic around. So if you have any questions, not too difficult ones. <laughs> uh, Joseph, how has the uh, aging of your body uh, affected your meditation practice? It's been, it's been a gradual process, as you probably uh, are aware of as well. Uh, mostly it's affected it in terms of how I sit. Uh, it's been quite a few years now since I can sit cross-legged, so that was a bit of a transition, having just sat cross-legged all the time and then going to a chair. But in terms of the mind... And um, I would say it's just gotten better. You know, um, I'm going to paraphrase something. I was just recently teaching uh, in France, and afterwards, some friends and I went to Barcelona, uh, and. In Barcelona, there's, you know, the famous church by Gaudi, and it's quite remarkable. And there was a, a saying on one of the walls, which, this is just going to be a paraphrase, and I wish I could remember it exactly. But it was something, and I guess he was relating it to architecture, perhaps art, but it really resonated with me in terms of meditation practice. And it was something like... Um, That art or architecture or the practice, if it's done without love, is just a technique. And somehow, that just resonated with me, in, really in relationship to what you asked, because in looking back to how I practiced earlier on, it was much more about learning a technique and trying to understand it and maybe master the technique to whatever extent possible. But over all these years of practice, the quality has changed, and it's not so much about technique, and it's not so much about getting anything. You could almost say it's more about love of the Dharma and just interest in understanding. You know, and so that quality really infuses the practice, and it's been a relief because there's much less of a gaining idea with it and more the idea of understanding. You know, so whatever's going on in my mind is the ups and downs and times of difficulty and times of ease, whatever it is. Instead of going through those experiences with an underlying self-assessment of how am I doing and you know, am I doing it right, or whatever. It's more just this interest, well, what is going on now? You know, if there's some kind of suffering, what's happening in my mind that's creating it? Uh, and so that has been, I think, a progression as I've gotten older, and it feels much more uh, holistic, much more complete, much more enjoyable. So the body will do its thing, and you know it imposes its own limitations, but the mind can really be on a trajectory of greater understanding. It's all the way in the back there.
Um, could you speak about um, practicing with anxiety and fear, especially in connection to trauma? Well, there is a whole spectrum there. I, I've worked a lot with fear earlier on in my practice, so that was kind of a, I would say, the primary afflictive emotion. You know, in, in terms of the different the different ones that come up for different of us, that was the strongest for me. But it wasn't so re, so much related to trauma, which is its own category, you know, of experience. Um, and so I'll just talk a little bit about working with the fear, non-traumatic fear, and then a few comments about you know, how one can work with it when it's really rooted in, in some trauma in one's life. Um, so I've given, I've given whole talks on this. I'm going to distill it, <laughs> distill the main point in just you know, a few minutes. The key turning point in my working with fear, and this can be applied to really anything that's arising in our practice, is after years of working with it. This was not a quick process, but it could be quicker than... You could do it quicker than I did it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I'll tell you... (laughs) What I finally learned, and you don't have to take so long, (laughs) and that is understanding the difference between recognition and mindfulness. And for a long time, I did not see that distinction. I thought if I recognized what was there and could name it and label it, I was being mindful. So when this fear would come up, and it was not fear about anything in particular, it was really irrational fear. It was just I have no idea where it came from, but I mean, there were times when that energy was so strong that I'd be afraid to go from sitting to standing. You know, so com- completely irrational. But there it was. It was a powerful, it was a powerful energy arising, and I'd be noting fear, 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 and it didn't, it didn't unlodge it in any way. Finally, at one point, and I was just doing walking meditation, actually, right outside here, um, and something shifted, and this is after years, you know, intermittently of working with it, where something shifted, and the shift was expressed in the thought in my mind, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And I realized that that was the first moment in all that time that I actually accepted it. In all the previous time, I recognized it, but I wanted it to go away. It's unpleasant. You know, so there was aversion in the mind, even as I was noting fear, fear, fear. Right? Recognition is not mindfulness. Because recognition, we can be recognizing things through different filters in the mind, whether it's the filter of aversion or the filter of desire or grasping. So seeing that distinction between recognition and mindfulness, which implies an acceptance of what it is that's arising, it's okay. It's okay to feel this. It's unpleasant. It doesn't make it pleasant, but it's okay to feel the unpleasantness. And it was amazing that just in that moment when I finally dropped into a place of genuinely accepting, because we can't fool the mind. You know, we could tell ourselves we're accepting it, <laughs> but if we're not, <laughs> it's not going to work. You know, so there has to be a... Uh, we have to come to that genuine place. It's okay. It's really okay to feel this. If it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. In that moment of genuine acceptance, I could feel that whole ball of fear wash through in a way that it never had before. And it's not to say that fear never comes up again, but the relationship to it now is completely different. It's okay. It's just another passing feeling. So that's the general 
framework with which to work, whether it's anxiety or fear or anything else. When it's rooted in trauma, so then I think, first, it's really good to work with somebody, you know, who is familiar with that in terms of giving guidance in how to work with it. But we need, a, we need somewhat more care because when things are trauma-based, sometimes it's not appropriate to dive right into the middle of it because it can trigger a very strong uh, traumatic response. And so there's a much more um, balanced dance we have to do of kind of opening to it a little bit, seeing how the mind is doing. If it feels like it's getting overwhelming or out of balance, we need to back up, maybe bring the mind to a more neutral place or even a pleasant experience to give the mind a little rest and balance, then maybe touch it again briefly, come back to a place of greater ease. And so there's a back and forth involved in that. Um, So this is just a general Uh, you know, guideline. But as I say, working with somebody, if the trauma is very strong and conditioning strong experiences, it's it's definitely workable, but it needs care. So I don't know if that's helpful at all, but that's that's how I would understand it. Um, It's very interesting, and I'm sure you've sat now for six weeks or three months Just be interested in in your asking yourself the question of whether your mind ever does what I'm about to say. (laughs) And my guess is that it does. Generally, and this is just so common, we assess our sittings based on whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. You know, maybe you come in and you have a really difficult sitting and a lot of pain in the body and maybe restlessness and boredom. And you get up, not here, but, you know, someplace, and somebody asks you, well, how was your sitting? Oh, it's a terrible sitting today. Or maybe you sit and you just, it's light and concentrated and blissful. Oh, how was your Oh, great sitting. We tend to assess the sitting based on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. But that is completely beside the point. It's really the, the, the wise assessment of the sitting is how mindful we were of whatever it is that's arising. You know, and so when there's unpleasantness, can we be with that with the same equanimity as we are with what's pleasant? That's really what we want to be paying attention to. But it takes a lot of uh, remembering that because the tendency is, and it's, in a way it's normal. <laughs> I, think, I think all of us on the path are a bit abnormal. <laughs> because the normal way people live is they want what's pleasant and they don't want what's unpleasant. <laughs> you know, and so you go up to anybody in the street, of course. It's just what makes sense. But that's not the path of practice. The Buddha gave one very striking teaching, which it always makes me sit up straight. (laughs) He said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. (laughs) That's quite a statement. (laughs) And it shows the work we need to do, <laughs> you know, because that conditioning is so powerful. We like what's pleasant, we don't like what's unpleasant. But you've probably had at least times, you know, in your practice here, where the mind really was in an equanimous place, even for short periods of time, pleasant fun, we're just aware of it, we're just mind, oh, pleasant, pleasant, or it's unpleasant, it's okay. It's fine, there's no aversion to it, no reactivity to it. That's what we're developing in the practice. And so with the unpleasant emotions, and again, 
there's trauma involved that takes a certain kind of care, but the general principle is that we learn to open to the pleasant and the unpleasant equally. Uh, and that's challenging. Hi, Joseph. Um, now that I'm in my 70s, uh, close friends are starting to get sick with things like cancer. And and a dear friend of mine just lost his uh, lifelong partner, who is also a dear friend of mine. Um, I also have an adult son who is uh, has a debilitating autistic condition. Um, how do I do uh, Upeka? practice when uh, these people I love and I uh, are suffering from things that are not of their own actions? Well, I would, I would really consider what you would most wish for them. And because the meta phrases or the compassion phrases... Um, and we have to be careful, along with the Vipassana practice, not to get too uh, fixated on the technique of them, but really try to connect with the essence of them. So I'll just give you an example of how we can mold the phrases to the situation. So this happened, I was giving... Uh, teaching a retreat just after 9-11. And it was in upstate New York, uh, so there were a lot of New Yorkers there. And we were doing the metta practice. And it came up, how in the world could I ever wish these people, you know, who caused so much destruction and death, wish them to be happy. It was just, there was no way that they could find that space in themselves. So it really made me reflect, if metta is really a universal quality, a boundless quality, what would that look like to be sending metta to people who have created so much destruction and harm? And it it took a little reflection on my part, but I was really interested in that question. And at a certain point, I realized that there was definitely a way to do metta practice in that situation. But it took reframing it. And so for me, the phrases became, in thinking of those people, you know, who, who caused so much harm and de- devastation, may you be free of hatred. May you be free of delusion. You know, may you be free of fear. Is there anybody that we would exclude from the wish, may you be free of hatred? No. And so so it becomes a way of embracing everybody with that basic feeling of connectedness as a fellow human being. But we have to find the right expression for it. And so I would say, you know, with people close to you who are going through either a dying process or different difficulties, I would look in your heart and see, well, given this, given the situation they're in, what is your deepest heartfelt wish for them? I mean, it might be something as simple as, may your heart be at ease. Or, you know, but you have to find your own... You have to find your own words for your own feeling and intention. But I think that's the way to do it, and it's definitely possible in any circumstance. It's just finding the right language. A bird is getting a little workout. <laughs> So, 
since I saw you around the center, I would think, if I could meet with Joseph, I would ask him this. <laughs> so now I got a chance to ask. <laughs> How did you start um, such a beautiful sangha? What is needed for a sangha like this to happen or to flourish? This comes because where I live, there is no sangha or community. It really, I think, it, it did start when I think back, you know, to kind of the beginning years, even before IMS, but even when I was still living in India. Um, I think the process is coming to some place in our own practice where we feel as if there's enough understanding that it would be valuable to share it. You know, so it's probably not a good idea to do a meditation weekend and then go out and set up oneself as a teacher. <laughs> Which sometimes happens. <laughs> but also, it doesn't have to mean, you know, one waits for 50 years. But, you know, when there's a real devotion to the practice and you've done enough to, to feel confident in your understanding of the practice, then it could be well, I'll just I'll just reflect about when I was when I was in India, uh, and there were f uh, other Westerners there practicing. We would go up to the mountains uh, during the summer months because it was, it was so hot on the plains. And uh, many of us were living in Dalhousie, which is what they call one of the hill stations, beautiful seven thousand feet overlooking the Himalayas. And people would rent different like cottages or and spend the hot season up there. And I just started um, offering to give like a share in a meditation and a, like a mini Dharma talk once a week. And so people would just, anybody who was interested would just come. But week after week, it, it kind of built a Sangha. You know? And then there would, you know, we, we'd have a discussion afterwards. And so sometimes it's just as simple as becoming a focal point for people who are interested and then sharing what you're able to share. Um, and that's really, that's really happened. And then more people heard and more people came. And, um, and then at a certain point, uh, one of my teachers asked if I would teach a short retreat. So it's a very organic uh, process. But it just started with my own practice and feeling at a certain point, oh, there's, there's some things I understand that I can share. Uh, so it's not, it's not really complicated or mystical. Uh, and also, you know, depending on one's personality type, Sometimes people overestimate themselves, but sometimes people underestimate themselves, you know, and kind of a holding back even when they it really would be a good thing to share what they know. But for most people, at least in the beginning, and even more than the beginning, motivations will be mixed. So if we're waiting for us to be totally saintly, before we share the Dharma, it'll probably be a reasonably long wait. <laughs> so for me, it, it, for me, what's most important as people get into some kind of sharing role is just to stay very attuned to the different motivations that are arising in the mind not to expect that they're going to all be totally pure, 
So just as an example of that, when people would come for those weekly kind of talks, and this, I was just beginning, it was the first sharing I really had done. So every week before I gave the talk, I would count how many people came. Oh, this week, eight people came. And then the, oh, only five people came this week. <laughs> Maybe the last week wasn't so good. <laughs> you know, so my mind just, just did that. Not the most wholesome motivation. <laughs> but I would just see that arise in my mind. It would come, and it would be there, and I would see it go. And then I would get into it, and the sharing felt very pure. You know, as I, as I was actually speaking the Dharma, it's like the Dharma energy took over. But if I had seen that part of my mind, which was not so pure, and said, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, I think that would have been a mistake, because we do have mixed motives you know, about a lot of different things. Um, so just one more story about motivation, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about over these weeks. Attuning to one's motivations about anything, about the practice, about our speech, about how we act in the world. Motive, the motivation behind the action is as you know, that's really the uh, determining factor for the karmic potential of that act. It's the motivation behind it that determines whether it's skillful or unskillful. But how often do we actually, for example, in speech, it's not very common, I think, for people to take that moment to reflect on, okay, why am I saying this? What's the motive behind it? You know, usually <laughs> the words just come spilling out, which you've had a break from that now <laughs> for six weeks or three months, but starting tomorrow and being out in the world, you'll be back in that world of a lot of talking. Right speech is a huge arena for our practice. I, it's been so valuable, you know, for me, and because we talk a lot. But as I said, mostly we're not paying attention to the motive. Okay, so this is just one other little motivation story. So I was on retreat once, and I was reading some of the suttas, and I came across a passage, it was a story in one of the suttas, the discourses, that I thought my colleague, Sharon Salzberg, who was writing a book at the time, that this would be a good story for her book. So that was my first thought. I read this, oh, yeah, Sharon would really, this would be good. You know, I'll, I'll tell her about it. And then my very next thought was, knowing that as a teacher, a good story is gold. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to keep this story for myself. <laughs> this is too good to just give away. <laughs> So I saw that thought, and then I, I said the thought, oh, well, that's just being selfish. No, I'll, I'll give her the story, but I'll tell her what I went through <laughs> so she'll feel a little indebted. <laughs> and I was just watching my mind go through this whole train of different motivations. And at a certain point, I mean, I was, I was basically amused by it. You know, I was, I was just watching my mind do this. And then I asked, well, where in the midst of all this is there any purity of motivation? And I realized there was in that very first moment. You know, that, was, that was just that spontaneous motivation of being generous. And I realized that even though we may have a whole train of other kinds of motivations that follow, if we're mindful and we see it, and we don't act from them, we can always come back to that very first generous impulse. Right? So this is why it's important to be aware of our motives, but without the expectation that they all have to be perfectly pure before we can act. Because maybe until we're arhans, you know, the mind is a mix of different qualities and different motivations. And it's mindfulness which lets us see all that 
and then choose, okay, well, which one am I going to feed? You know, which one, which one am I going to try to act on and which can I just let go of? So I would say, you know, when you go back to wherever you're going, you might put up a note on the local health food store or whatever. Uh, anybody interested in meditation? We'll kind of have a group sit in discussion. Some, something really simple. You know, and, and can really be the beginning of some kind of small sangha. And so I gave her the story, and she didn't even want it. <laughs> After all that. Hi. I, this retreat, I found myself really beset with an illness I had called deathless fever, <laughs> where when things felt sort of new, or unfamiliar, it was just, I mean, there's a whole lot of varieties of it, of waiting for it and pretending I'm not waiting for it and thinking about all the things that I've heard about the end of what what to do about it. And I mean, this is part of a larger question about um, how to, yeah, effort, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when it gets to more subtle kind of, what am I even doing? What is an action? The like, what is it? Yeah, what am I? What is it doing at all? Um, it's not so clear. Um, yeah, the space can get really just tied up in knots. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having been practiced, having been practicing for so many years now. I feel like I've fallen into every possible hole that one can fall in. (laughs) So it all sounds familiar to me. (laughs) So I think a big problem is when we have some idea in our mind of enlightenment or the deathless, but it's an abstraction. You know, we just have some notion of what it might be, and then we can, we can drive ourselves a little crazy, either in striving mode, you know, and, and over-efforting, or just confusion. You know, well, where is the practice going, and what is it really about? So what I'm about to suggest is a practice which for me, takes it out of the realm of abstraction and gives even a mini-taste of really what the practice is about at its deepest level. Ready? Okay. So the, the preface to this little teaching is a line in, that's found in the suttas pretty commonly, and it's a line that sometimes when, when people hear it, they actually get enlightened just hearing it. And at other times, this very same line is the expression of somebody's moment of realization. And it's so simple. I mean, it's totally simple. That for years I read it and just would just read it and thought, oh yeah, that's obvious. So the line is... Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. It's simple. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. A basic statement of impermanence. So I've read it a million times. Yeah, yeah that's... <laughs> I would just read it and not really give it any, any more thought because it seems so obvious. But a couple of years ago, I was on a self-retreat I was just sitting kind of into my practice and this line just arose in my mind. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. But because I was sitting and 
somewhat what I was saying before about how instead of the practice being a technique, just what is that what does that line actually mean in terms of this experience right now? And so that sentence, it like dropped right into the midst of just the momentary unfolding of the breath and sensations and thoughts, just the usual meditative flow of experience. So this line dropped in. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And in that moment, I realized right in that meditative flow, if whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, therefore there's nothing to want. Because whatever it is that I might be wanting on a meditative level, this can also pass away. And And two things happened. One is I could feel my mind drop back from a wanting that was not even, I had not even known it was there. But are you you familiar with the experience? And this, I think, is quite common. In fact, I would imagine it may be the predominant aspect of your meditative experience where just on a, a very subtle, energetic level, we're leaning into the next moment. We're with this in order for this. It might be we're with the in-breath in order for the out-breath. Or we're with a certain sensation in order for it to open. Or there's some kind of leaning into the next moment as if the next moment will resolve everything. But of course, it never does because whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. Right? And so we're continual in this leaning into the process. So when this thought came, and then I realized, therefore, there's nothing to want. Right in that moment, just with that phrase, there's nothing to want. I could feel the mind drop back from any wanting. For a moment, you know, or any leaning into the next moment. And it was so striking, the difference between not wanting and leaning into. Are we together with this? Or by? (laughs) Okay. And I realized in that moment that really what we're practicing, or what we should be practicing, is not wanting. That's what the practice is about. It's not about gaining experience. But we don't practice, generally, and I see it in myself, a good part of the time, I'm with this in order for something to happen. Instead of, remember, not wanting. That's where the freedom is. And it was expressed, the Buddha, the Buddha ex- it's built into the Four Noble Truths. You know, there's dukkha and the cause, which is craving, and the end of dukkha, which is the end of craving. And then the, the Buddha's enlightenment song, after, after his great awakening, you know, the famous house builder quote, house builder, you have now been seen, you will build no house again, this house of self. And then he ends that with, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. It's as explicit a statement of freedom as you can get. Achieved is the end of craving. My problem had been that I had always seen that as a far-off goal. You know, okay, I'll practice for the next five lifetimes, and maybe I'll get to the end of craving. And it was revelatory to realize, yeah, the final end of craving may be sometime in the future, but we can actually touch that and experience that in any moment. And maybe just for a moment, but we get a real taste 
of the peace and freedom of not wanting. And so just as a meditative experiment, you know, if you're interested, as you're practicing, when you get into the flow, you know, whatever's happening, maybe just, you could start dropping in the whole phrase, you know, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away, therefore there's nothing to want, or just uh, shorten it to not wanting, or there's nothing to want. And see if, if just bringing that to mind, see if that affects a shift in your experience and in your practice. And I think it might well. Again, just for the moment, there's nothing to want. So now, these days, I actually use that quite a lot. Reminding myself, oh, this is the practice. It's not about wanting. And it's not about getting. Um, which can tie one up in knots. But the not wanting is always accessible, again, even if it's just for a moment. So one last piece to this. The reason I'm going on and on about it is because it really had quite a profound impact on my practice. You know, so I think it's significant. If you experiment with this and explore this, and you know, you're just going along, oh, nothing to want. And then if you recognize that moment of kind of the dropping back from the leaning into the next moment, just, I don't know the right word, just become aware as best you can of the experience of or the quality of the mind that doesn't want. You know, so just in that moment, okay, what, what does, what's that like? What is that moment feel like? And I think you'll experience that in the moment of not wanting, and I'm talking now primarily on the meditative level. There's another whole discussion about what that might mean in the world. But now I'm talking specifically about the meditative process. There's nothing to want. There is a momentary experience of peace, of stillness, of completion. It's all there in that moment. The end of craving for the moment or for two moments. But it gives you a real taste rather than it being some abstraction that you're thinking about. Do you follow? So I don't know whether that kind of addressed your question, but it would definitely bring your mind to a place of ease, greater ease. There's there's so much to say about right effort, but (laughs) and, and too much effort. You were speaking about motivation earlier, um, intention, the same thing. Last couple of days, I was noticing, I kind of called it a not true practice. I was noticing whenever there wasn't mindfulness and the mind was just doing its stories, it was always not true. It was just, I, I was kind of floored, like just. Not, not true. That's not true. It was like whenever it was yeah, just yeah, a yeah, bare yeah. mindful moment. Um, and then Jaya suggested, you know, okay, a couple of days of telling yourself everything is not true. That you it, maybe look at the intention before the thought. What's the intention behind the thought? And the intention is always the. Nothing's always, but uh, becoming, just eye making. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, help! You don't want to. Okay, this is, this is what, what, this, just keep. This is simple. Just keep knowing. No, this is simple. Oh yay! 
So there are, there are two levels of working with thoughts. One level, and we could say this is kind of the relative level, of discerning which thoughts are wholesome, which are unwholesome, which are beneficial, which are not beneficial. So on that level, you were discerning. This is a whole category of thoughts that are unwholesome or not beneficial, not true. So in a way, you're fulfilling already that, that level of mindfulness in just a discernment. On a deeper level, it's really exploring the nature of thought as opposed to the content of the thought. And so a question that I often suggest people ask themselves, especially when there's a whole thought, you're on a thinking jag, you know, so when there are a lot of thoughts, to ask the question of yourself, what is a thought? Not what is a thought saying, but what is it as a phenomenon? So this gets very interesting, really interesting. And it's something I think very few people ever do. Mostly we are just caught up, either lost in or reactive to, or to the content, to the story of what's being said. I think there are very rarely do people really stop and what is thought as a phenomenon. And when you look in that way, it's so interesting because what is a thought, you know, and we have endless, endless times to practice this. We see that a thought is little more than nothing. It's so ephemeral and so insubstantial And what is so remarkable is that when we're not mindful that we're thinking, thought has huge power in our lives. We're the slaves of our thoughts. You know, go here, go there, do this, do that. And so we're we're just running after, you know, whatever the thoughts are telling us to do. So they have all this power when we're unaware, not mindful. And when we are mindful of the nature of thought, when we say, well, what is a thought? It has no power at all. And on that level, the content doesn't matter. Right? So on that level, you don't even have to bother figuring anything out because you're seeing the very empty nature of thought itself. And I just find this incredibly interesting. You know, that something which can have so much power when we're not mindful and have no power when we are, well, that's worth paying attention to. <laughs> you know? And there's a lot of freedom that comes. And it takes, it, it's more than just seeing it once. <laughs> you know, we, we need to practice seeing the empty nature of thought you know, over and over again until it's so deep within us that at least for a good part of the time, we don't take our thoughts so seriously. It's just this, it's just this empty phenomena. Uh, exactly. There's nothing, the, the content is irrelevant on that level. When we're about to act, that's when we want to tune in to the content level, to that discernment, is this helpful or not helpful. But in the meditation practice itself, we can go to the more fundamental level. It's very freeing. So just as as an exercise, you might also pay attention, and this, this I also found extremely interesting, you know, just in the course of the day when we're, when we're moving about, whether on retreat or off retreat, we have endless number of quickly passing thoughts that go through the mind. And for the most part, they're not problematic. You know, they may not even be troublesome. They're just like that. Because they're not dramatic or problematic, what I notice is that I hardly pay attention to them because they don't seem to be a problem. 
But then at a certain point, I did start paying attention. And I realized that even though they may last for a short time, maybe five seconds or ten seconds, and maybe not particularly problematic, for that five or ten seconds, I was back in a dream state, not aware that the thought was there. And I saw that a lot of these very light thoughts, in one way or another, was self-referential. Just maybe it's a plan, maybe it's a memory, maybe something, but something to do with the sense of I. And so a phrase that I started using when I noticed this was, I'm just dreaming myself into existence. Every time I'm lost in a thought, it's like a dream, even if it's short and not problematic. So it's very interesting just hear what you still hear, but when you go home, just as kind of an experiment, see what it's like to set the intention, even maybe take 10 minutes or we have a strong, okay, I'm going to really be aware of these quickly passing thoughts. And it's very interesting to see how much of the time that we think we're awake, we're asleep. Because it's just for short, it's, it's like mini-naps, you know, where we just drop, we're lost, and then five, ten seconds later, we're aware again. But that happens very often. And so to bring attention to that, again, it really opens something up. All right. Um, let me see if I can be mindful for this question. Uh, it's uh, something that it's my mind on and off, and it probably came up on this retreat one more time. It's about um, sexual pleasure and awakening. And I wonder if this might be anybody's mind as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like um, for the past two years since I've been doing this practice I feel like I have seen so little I have heard so little about this huge topic and um, sometimes I go on Dharma Seeds I feel like a, there's one teacher there that actually can name a Dharma talk sexual pleasure and awakening and I wonder why you know, such a big, important part of... And I understand the tools that I have now of mindfulness and awareness and letting go of greed, of attachment, of how can that be applied to touch another human being, but I wonder why there's so few talks about it. And the follow-up is, do you know of teachers or books um, that you could recommend on this subject? Um, as you say, it's a huge topic because sexual energy is so primal you know, and so powerful. Um, so there's a whole... Um, cause there's a whole spectrum of... Ways of relating to that energy. So, of course, on retreat, you know, where we take the precept to refrain from sexual activity, it's a chance that, which doesn't mean that sexual energy doesn't arise within us because it's easy to spend a long time lost in sexual fantasies. You know, and at different times they arise and they can be really powerful. Being on retreat where we are abstaining from expression, first, this, this kind of environment or experience gives us the chance to really become intimate with the energy itself within us and how we're relating to it. So one of the great lessons on this level, and as I said, there's a whole spectrum, is the understanding or the realization. So we're just sitting and we're with the breath and we're with the bodily sensations and maybe uh, you know, strong sexual energy starts to come up in us. 
may be triggered by some fantasy or maybe the energy starts to create fantasies, but we can feel it in the body and sometimes very strongly and it can get very pleasurable. Remember, this, this goes back years. So the first time when, you know, once the mind gets a little bit concentrated and then I was having these kind of experiences, oh, this is fun. <laughs> you know, because in some way the meditation was just kind of opening to a fuller experience of that energy within myself. You know, and so for quite a while it was, oh, well, let me go say it. <laughs> and then after some time, and it took quite a long time, but the, the next phase was, okay, enough already. <laughs> you know, I was kind of getting annoyed at it because after indulging it for quite a while, that, okay, no, this is, this is not on with leading in this context. All right. And so then when it came, I would get a little impatient, actually. And then finally, it came to a place just of real equanimity. I'd just settle back, and when it was there, I could just be with it, with a lot less attachment to it or feeding it, and without any pushing it away. It was just, it was just another experience. And what was instructive about that, it countered the notion that with sexual energy and many other things as well, that the choice is either we're expressing it or we're suppressing it. That was, that was what had been in my mind. But the meditation showed that there is a middle way between those two where we're not expressing it, especially in this context, but also we're not suppressing it because we can, we can sit and really be open to feeling whatever those sensations and energies are, and they're usually very pleasant, but we can be with them, and they go by themselves because everything that has the nature to rise will also pass away. So it's not suppressing it, and it's not expressing it. It's just allowing that experience to arise, to do whatever it's going to do, to pass away like everything else. So there gets to be a real equanimity with respect to that powerful energy. So this is really an important understanding. One time Saida Upandita was giving a talk about sense desire. And this is not yet quite getting to what you were asking, but I'll, I'll get there in a moment. He was giving a talk on sense desire, and he was talking in Burmese. And he went on. He was going on maybe for five or ten minutes. And then the translator translated what he said into four words. And the four words were, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) Lust cracks the brain. In my experience, that is completely true. (laughs) That when we're in a lustful state of mind, we can go crazy. Just have to read any newspaper. You know, there's so, so many unskillful actions can happen when people are captured by a strong lust. It really can cloud everything. So that's why what I've been saying previously of just coming to an understanding of that energy where there's balance, where we're not suppressing it, we're not necessarily expressing it. And so we're not, we're not so prone to getting totally identified with it when it arises you know, and acting in ways that might not be helpful. Okay. So that's the meditative... Uh, a meditative way of relating to strong sexual desire when it arises. Then the question is, we're not, I don't, most of us are not leading the monastic life with its own set of 
guidelines. So as lay people, and for many people, sexual activity is an important part of one's life. So leaving aside kind of the use of that in some uh, esoteric spiritual way, which, you know, in some of the schools of Buddhism and Tantra, uh, there are practices that I'm not familiar with, and so that's why I'm leaving it aside for now. Uh, So there might be ways of actually challenging that specific energy in a particular meditative discipline. So that you would have to really speak with, with teachers who do those practices. And I know uh, that at least in some of the Tibetan traditions, they talk about that, but I'm really not familiar. So leaving that end of the spectrum aside, just as lay people in the world involved in relationships and sexual desire and intimacy... It's really the same practice of being mindful, being attentive, being aware, being sensitive, not causing harm, seeing what the motive is. You know, is, is it really coming from a place of love? So there are, a lot of, there are a lot of aspects that mindfulness will illuminate. Uh, and it's important because it is such a powerful energy I think it is important that we really pay attention to how we engage with it. Um, so that was a long answer that really says, be mindful. <laughs> you know, e- even as we're engaged in all the activities of life. But that one is a particularly powerful one for many people. And so to really bring that sensitivity and mindfulness to it, I think is is a great and important practice. I think that's all I have to say on it. (laughs) Uh, But as I say, there are more esoteric practices, which if you were interested, um, you could just Google Tibetan Buddhism and sexuality. (laughs) See see what comes up. Ms. Google knows everything. Maybe the last question. What does letting go mean to you? And do you think that there will ever come a day when all minds have released illusion? Okay, so two questions. Uh, The first one is answerable, and the second one is not. (laughs) So perhaps a better expression than letting go is letting be. Because letting go, in a way, implies a doing Letting be just implies allowing things to unfold. And because everything that has a nature to arise will also pass away, the letting go happens by itself if we're letting be. Because then things are just arising and passing and we're not interfering with that process. Uh, You know, so much of meditative understanding, especially, you know, you've all gotten deeply involved now in the practice. I have a tremendous uh, appreciation for how powerfully language conditions our experience. And so sometimes if we get caught or we're in a struggle or confused or something, very often it's because how we're languaging something. It's not actually the experience itself. So this is an example. We could use the phrase letting go, and that might call up all kinds of, well, what does that mean, and how do I do it? And the simple 
oh, letting be. That might be a much simpler uh, way of experiencing things. So it's interesting just to look at language uh, in terms of whether we're going (laughs) in a direction of all beings getting enlightened. (laughs) Was that what you were? You know, one of my favorite mantras And it's not the who knows of confusion. It's just the who knows of openness. Realizing what we don't know and resting in the not knowing. Uh, So uh, I could go on forever, but my first teacher, Munindraji, he really did go on forever. <laughs> he once gave a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been very conscious of how long these Dharma talks go. <laughs> so, thank you. Uh, it was great just, you know, over these last three months, wandering in for lunch and seeing all the yogis practicing. It's really inspiring. You know, this, there's nothing better to do. There really isn't, which you will discover in another day or two. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is really fantastic. You know, and I have a lot of appreciation and respect for all your practice because this is really what the world needs. You know, and to bring whatever understanding we develop whatever peace we develop in ourselves out into the world uh, is the greatest gift. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.